you are the salt of the earth. <laughs> but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, experts, commentaries offer all sorts of explanations and applications for being salt. Salt of the earth, living a salty life. Uh, Salt was used in the ancient Near East as a sign of friendship. It was utilized as a currency between people and groups of people. It's said that the whiteness of salt is symbolic of the purity that Christians are supposed to possess. All kinds of things are written about this brief comment, you're the salt of the earth. But in a society where there were no fridges, and you are eating mostly the same thing every day, the simple explanation is salt was used to prevent decay and to flavor food. In both cases, eating it would make a person thirsty for more. So, we'll define a salty life this morning like this. It's a different sort of life that stops decay in and adds flavor to the lives of others, leaving them wanting more. That's kind of what Jesus was getting at. He packed it into this statement. A different sort of life stops decay, adds flavor to other lives, leaving them wanting more. And for anyone who has ever wanted to make a difference, even if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're visiting with us, anyone who has ever wanted to make a difference, leave a legacy, impact persons, and to live a life that matters, it's a something in you, something in you, resounds with Jesus' description of salt to a decaying and flavorless world. It should inspire us. It it resonates with us. And we begin here today. In fact, you're going to have a hard time moving on with me in this this, uh, message this morning if there isn't part of you that is saying, sign me up. How can I get a hold of this kind of flavorful, decay-halting life. For some of you, the aim is even more specific. You want that kind of life. You want this kind of salty living among uh, at-risk youth. For some of you, it's living a salty life in a friendship with a single mom or a salty life amongst three or four specific persons that you've targeted at your workplace. In the evenings with your spouse, at your school, at the golf course, in your yoga class, amongst the poor, in your community group, or with your two next-door neighbors. How can we be salt in these places and for these people? 
enter the book of Joshua, which preaches to us how in the midst of a new land and new people and new opportunities, God calls Joshua and the people God asked him to lead, who I'm calling Generation Next, to be salt. Specifically, though, not just salt, but how to be salt during a time of blessing. During a time, what does that mean? Time of blessing? I'm going to explain. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. First, we've we got to get a little bit of a feel for where we are in God's big story. This book of Joshua, where are we? And God's big story of what he's doing by creating humanity into a relationship with himself. Well, let's talk about that. We're going to start with the big time blessing of Abe's covenant. All right. God chose to make a covenant, a promise to a dude named Abram. And if that sounds random to you, if you're wondering, whoa, 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 back up, who's Abram, what makes him so special? I don't know, and we're all in the dark. <laughs> all right, so if it seems random, okay, who is he? It's just as random in the Bible. Because God just chooses this man. We don't want to know anything else about him. But he says, I'm going to make this amazing, life-altering, life-enriching, prosperous promise to you. What God often does, out of his mercy, he just chooses. Anyway, he chooses Abram to enter into a covenant. And he repeats this covenant on three different occasions in the book of Genesis. All right, we're going to look at each of these three briefly. This is important for our story when we get to Joshua. All right, so first, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 1-3. That's the first time he talks to Abraham about this covenant. Second time is in Genesis 15. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. So he's starting to wonder, okay, he said, but this, you know, people of the earth will be blessed, all these people, but I got no offspring. I'm, so, and a member of my household is going to be my heir. In other words, back then, oftentimes your servant would be the person who inherits your property if you did not have an heir by birth. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's the second time. The third time he brings up this covenant. Genesis 17. He says that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but Abraham, for I have made you the father 
of multitude of nations. So we've got three promises at work here. Actually, four, because of the spiritual blessing that Abraham's family would be all the way into the New Testament. But we're going to talk about three more immediate promises at work here. A family, a nation, and a land. All right, these are the three promises contained in this covenant. A big family, a big nation, and a big land. So God produces through Abraham first a family. All right, in this family, it goes on for a while. It looks like it's going to die out over and over again, but miraculously it keeps going, and it gets bigger and bigger. I mean, really big, like mafia big. All right, and they take a field trip to Egypt, and they like it so much that they stay in this land of the south. Everyone likes to go south, right, since the beginning of time. Just, just warmer there, I guess. Uh, after a while, though, things go poorly, and this family gets enslaved. God delivers them, though, miraculously. And having delivered them, he gives them a law to live by. So I think that will guide them. And by giving them a law, God fulfills his promise to make this family into a nation. In fact, when you read the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're still in family mode. This big horde of people, still in family mode. It's this one big constant family gathering that's descending upon places. Which is why none of these countries wanted Israel around. All right, huge, weird, chaotic, orderless family that's roaming from place to place. Then God gives them order. An extensive law to be governed by, to live by. And it begins with the famous Ten Commandments. And upon getting this law... God immediately starts to call them a nation. It's pretty cool, actually. He doesn't call them a nation until this law is given. Exodus 19, let's read there, actually, just real quick to give you an idea. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, set before them all of these words, this whole law that God had commanded him. So now we got a law, orderly, they're a nation. Two of the three promises of the covenant now fulfilled. But part three, that's the big ticket. Right? It is the creme de la creme, the honeymoon suite, the bell cow. It's the big time. Because family and fertility, that's helpful, right? Recognize nationhood, that's nice. But give me some real estate, and we will feel like a people. And that's the starting gate here from the book of Joshua. God's people ready to be led into the promised land by Joshua. Part three, the big time of the promises fulfilled for our family, for our nation. Or Joshua and his people, to, and to understand what he and his people might have been thinking as they stood in the starting gate, ready to cross over a river and into the land of milk and honey, to get into their minds, to try to get in their shoes, we've got to get to know Joshua a little bit better. Having been with the masses through slavery, through miraculous plagues, through Red Sea splitting, Josh, Joshua first shows up by name in Exodus 
17, when Moses asked him to lead a battle against the Amalekites. All right, so he wins this battle. God blesses him through it, and he learns some responsibility. Uh, Next up, Exodus 24, we hear about Joshua again, and he's accompanying Moses up the mountain. Forty days and forty nights, basically, in a cloud of glory. And, I mean, it's, it's a lot of time up there. And knowing God isn't just all fireworks and this sort of thing, it's actually a lot of instructions. He receives, Moses does instructions about ministering before the tabernacle, about priests, what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to wear. And I'm talking seven chapters full of Martha Stewart-like detail on how to decorate your house and what to wear for a party. That's pretty much what it is for seven chapters in the book of Exodus and in this cloud of glory. So this assistant to Moses, and he's called that, by the way, both in Exodus and the beginning of Joshua, the first verse of Joshua, actually, this assistant to Moses, then goes down the mountain with Moses to the rebellion of God's people, Exodus 32. He goes down the mountain with Moses to witness what is up to this point the lowest point in this nation's history, in this family's history. While Moses was gone, the people get antsy. They wonder, oh man, Moses is gone. God's probably gone with them. Oh gosh, we need another God. So they decide the best thing to do is to basically make a new God out of their jewelry collections. They pull it all together. They make a God. Uh, They worship it, indulge themselves. Joshua watches Moses rebuke God's people. He watches God judge some rear end, bring about some death, before Moses intercedes and pleads with God to spare some lives, which God does out of his mercy. So, a little bit later, Joshua, along with 11 other dudes, is chosen to go and spy out this promise three of the covenant blessing, this promised land. He's going to go get a, get a closer look at this land. Ten of the twelve guys return and say, that's a nice place, a little too nice. All right, cities are too big, the people are too many, and they have been working out. These people, I mean, they are huge. Maybe we want to settle for something smaller. Now, Joshua and Caleb, they decide they're going to trust God's promise to give them this land. And they actually say, let's go up at once and occupy it. God's told them. They trust God's promise. But no one else does. The people instead agree with the majority, and they just start going ape crazy. I mean, just complaining, griping, crying out, begging for something. They actually beg to go back to Egypt into slavery, which would be preferable these massive cities and people before them. And this constitutes rebellion number 10 by this point. And God says, okay, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, none of you, none of you in this generation get to come in. None of you get to enter the land. Only your children. Only generation next. And while a little time goes by, Joshua was commissioned by Moses to take over the mantle of leadership uh, after Moses retires. All right, by retires, when, when God retires you at this point, it just, you know, takes you to be with him in glory. He's got to croak first. Numbers 26, that's when that happens. Uh, he gives this mantle of leadership. 
Moses leads for a little while longer, but then Joshua does take over, leading this next generation. That's when we get to the book of Joshua. Joshua at this point, right, he's been through all of this, and he has witnessed and been apprenticed to a remarkable leader, known as the greatest prophet in all of Israel, then and since. Now, though, it's his time. I'm going to take over that mantle. However, in the first three books of Joshua, we see that before entering that land, he's got to read a little bit. In fact, his reading material is going to be continually the same books of Moses. God talks to him about Moses. Almost every other sentence is Moses, Moses, Moses. And he gets he's promised an identical mini version of the same miracle done through, guess who? Moses. Performing the same rituals of circumcision and the Passover feast. And once again, he even has to send, again, send spies into the promised land. You see a theme going on here. So here at the starting gate, you have Joshua, great assistant to a greater leader. Told some time ago he'd be able to take over responsibility for leading. But as he takes over, asked to do the same old things and experience the same old things. You must be wondering if next generation's day in the sun is just going to be a rerun of the previous. We also have the starting gate, this new generation of people, generation next who are told early on in their lives, I mean as kids, that they'll be able to experience the greatest blessing known to the family and nation of Israel. They're going to get this, land it in their lap with a silver spoon, without enduring any of the anguish and heartache of the generations before it in slavery and destitution, without experiencing the power of God through the ten plagues that utterly defy the natural order without walking miles in the wilderness, only to be told the next meal is going to be just dropping from the sky at any moment, without being asked to, well, now you've got to kill your closest friends because they picked the golden cow over Yahweh. So you don't experience, have to do any of that. You camp out in safety for years. Now you get to walk into the most fertile, prosperous, beautiful land your eyes have ever seen, and you hold the deed to it. Given to you. All of the hard suffering endured already. Obedience has already been wrought through the fires of discipline. The hard work has already been sown. In a sense, they get to coast into the blessing sown by others. They must have felt a tendency towards entitlement. You know, just show up. Go through daily worship, daily routine of worship, and go with the flow. Let me set this in a more modern scene for us that I uh, witnessed recently. Just to illustrate it a little better. At the very beginning of August, I was flying back to Cayman, coming back from holiday. First had to go from Atlanta to Miami, and we were just sitting there parked at the gate. And on the other side of the aisle, about two rows ahead of me as well, 
Uh, sat a grandfather, a young grandson, about seven or eight years old-ish, uh, and a less young grandson who was a teenager. Grandfather was wearing a bomber jacket, and clearly a pilot as he began to talk, and he was excited because the seven-year-old was excited. The seven-year-old had never flown before. It was a new experience. He was kind of geeked up. And as the seven-year-old was excited, the grandfather took an opportunity to tell the grandson about the many challenges that he experienced as he learned to fly an airplane. He learned to fly piston-engine aircraft back in the 50s before there was these jet-engine commercial airplanes. As he talked about these challenges and the experience of flying then, he openly wondered, man, if there's any challenge or risk to flying anymore. Meanwhile, as he said this, the teenager stereotypically, with his headphones around his neck, uh, rolled his eyes and said to his younger brother, dude, I've flown half a dozen uh, times. It's the same thing every time. The best part's getting to South Beach. <laughs> kind of where it's at. I mean, he's doing seven to eight-year-olds, like, okay, I don't know what's South Beach. But I think this kind of encapsulates, this represents the two possible problems of blessing as a church, to be salt to the world. Acting as if being part of a church isn't as worth it. It's not as worth it because it's all been done before. The challenge is gone. It's the thrill is gone. It's, it's all been done before. On the one hand, or on the other, coasting along. Just coasting along through religious ceremony because it goes hand in hand with the comfortable life that we've been given. So friends, Joshua and Generation Next speak to these problems and so speak to us. We are a church who is called to be salty to the world around us. But we do so in a time, during a time, in a place, and in a church of blessing. At this time, I know that a number of us, for the, the economy isn't where we would like it to be, and you might feel a little bit pinched. But I'm confident 99% of you have not been asked to fight in a war Pretty much all of us, you know, your generation has never faced a large-scale invasion, a potential invasion from an external force. We all know where our next meal is coming from when we wake up in the morning. And that is an extraordinary blessing. You know that? This time we live in. We were in a place called the Cayman Islands. A place when you tell people where you live, they're like, ah, that's, well, how's the vacation, right? Whether you are from here or you came to live here, you, you, you've neither stayed here nor moved here for a harder life. Right? Slower pace, it's easier, it's simple, it's comfortable. Fifth largest banking center. In the world, despite a population under 60,000 people, highest standard of living of any Caribbean island, 14th highest 
gross domestic product per capita of any nation, despite the fact there are basically no natural resources in Cayman, right? Turtle meat has not caught on internationally. It just hasn't. You know, there used to be mahogany. Those of you that back in the day, that was a big export for a while, but that quickly ran out also. And yet, wealth, blessing. Finally, a church, a church that has miraculously and only by God's grace still exists. And not only exists, but has prospered. I mean, scores of folks who trusted their lives to Jesus, who committed themselves to a living with, serving, loving a local church body for the first time in their lives. That's the case for many of us. Even most of us. I mean, community groups continue to slowly but surely multiply. Uh, Faithful, generous giving. I mean, the last two years, we've not spent one day in the red. And now we're about to welcome more hired help. Two weeks from now, more hired help. Blessing. Blessing. And don't get me wrong, I mean, there's plenty of weaknesses, areas for growth and challenges. I mean, you experience the growing pains of doing this journey along with a young pastor, right, who also only exists by God's grace and has a ton to learn. We're still figuring out how to best invest ourselves in and reach out to a surrounding community. We're still trying to figure that out. We struggle to grow leaders who are committed to stay. But when I receive my Voice of the Martyrs prayer email on Fridays and read what many churches throughout the world go through, I mean, just this week, Get this email, a 17-year-old from Socialist uh, Laos who recently became a Christian while attending a church with a friend. Well, she's had to sneak around to follow Jesus. She's found out by her family who has trapped her in the house and has beat her continuously. Occasionally, she has gone out, snuck out to be with her church, but now doesn't even try. Because of the threat that exists. And you realize, man, we're blessed. Because you live on an island, the island of a hundred churches, and the hemisphere of a million, because you have access to the best and the brightest that Christendom has to offer with a click of your mouse or your remote, because you no longer feel motivated by pity for the struggling pastor of a struggling church because the struggle has turned into a lot of blessing. It's so easy. It's even tempting to step back and drift away because, hey, man, this this has all been done before. This is nothing new. Or it's equally as tempting to assume that living for God, being salty, mirrors the time, the place, the conditions in which you live. And so it's so easy to coast into blessing because we're just kind of entitled to it. It's like we're entitled to everything else. Right? Not recognizing, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when a person, sorry, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. 
Christ calls for us. He bids him come and die to die for something greater than himself, to die for the cause of Christ, to die for the gospel. It's a glorious death, but it's a death nonetheless. My guess is that each of us who live amongst blessing tend towards one of these two temptations. The same temptations that confront a generation next and its leader. But instead of giving in to those temptations, they launched into these God-sized missions. And it's amazing. See what God calls them to do and to walk into, even in a time of blessing. At sunrise, God has called us to a mission of introducing people to Jesus and, and just helping them grow by his grace. And so we envision accomplishing this mission through community that's bonded together with Jesus as the strongest glue between relationships, between unlikely friends. Uh, we outreach that is motivated by Jesus' love and sacrifice for us. Every day in corporate worship that is fueled by God sparing us graciously from eternal death. And fourthly, serving one another because of Him who humbled Himself to serve us. Although that's our vision, there's a lot of fill in the blanks there. There's a lot of what will this look like and what will you want of us, God? How does God want us to be salt and caman during a time of blessing, in a place of blessing, and part of a church of blessing? I want to tell you, friends, I do not have an agenda in this. I, I don't have an agenda other than what God will say to us through his word and just trying to be obedient to follow that. So whether you've been here for a few years now, whether you're relatively new with us, or whether this is your first Sunday, I want to invite you to join with me. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin to look at this book of Joshua and Generation Next, I really do sense strongly, Lord, that this is going to be the most prophetic of any series we've ever done. Just the most geared toward our time, uh, our situation in which we find ourselves, and so the most instructive in how you would like us to move forward to be salt and light in K-Man, to not settle for just coasting in to religious ceremony and routine, but also not drift away because it's all been done before, but to be salt and light, even with the challenge of blessing and what that brings. God, I pray that you would use your word in the book of Joshua to launch us into God-sized missions. Missions that will challenge us, that if you don't come through, we'll fall flat on our face, we'll look like fools, we'll die to our reputations. Lord, help us not settle for anything less than that. I just pray your blessing on us as a church, not only today, but over these next weeks and months. We thank you for how you've blessed us. Now we ask that you would help us respond courageously 
to be salt to the community and world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.